When you think about your life, would you say you experience a great deal of meaning? How about in your work? We'll hear from Dr. Michael Steger, the world's leading expert on the psychological study of meaning in life, on this episode of the Purposeful Work Podcast. Welcome to the Purposeful Work Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Dick. The Purposeful Work Podcast is brought to you by PathwayU, an online career assessment system that uses predictive science to help you find joy, meaning, and purpose in your career. For more information to join, go to pathwayu.com. That's pathway, then the letter u.com. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Steger. Mike is professor of psychology and director of the Center for Meaning and Purpose at Colorado State University. He's a giant in the field of positive psychology, and in particular, the study of meaning in life and in work. Mike's work has been cited 16,000 times in the research literature. He's the author of the most frequently used scales that measure meaning in life and meaningful work. And he's co-edited several books, including Designing Positive Psychology and Purpose and Meaning in the Workplace. He lectures around the world on meaning-related topics. I had the privilege of hearing Mike deliver the keynote at the World Congress on Positive Psychology this past summer in Melbourne, Australia, one of a dozen talks he gave at that conference. You can find Mike's TEDx talk, What Makes Life Meaningful, on YouTube. Mike, thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. I've heard you introduced as someone who conducts research on the meaning of life, and you've always been quick to make a correction. You study meaning in life, not the meaning of life. What's the difference? That's a good question, because when we think big, lofty words like meaning, a lot of times our thoughts go to, uh, you know, is there a God? Where did the universe come from? What happens after we die? And all these very important and extremely interesting questions that um, ultimately are not answerable in the ways that I like to try to pursue what I'm studying. So um, where it's a fascinating concept to think about what the meaning of life is, the big ultimate picture and the reason behind all of this, you can't get data on that question. That's a matter of perspective and faith for many. So I'm more interested in what happens with it when an individual person tries to understand the answer for him or herself of that question. And that means that we're not talking about the meaning of life. We're talking about an individual person's relationship to life through a meaning lens. And in the literature, that's just called meaning in life. And I like to think about it as the meaning of life is just too big and too open-ended. And it's really hard to get any clear data about whether you're on the right path. So the meaning in life is really the meaning of life applied to your own circumstances. And therefore, you're in a perfect position to understand what's going on. Are we talking about disciplinary differences? Do philosophers approach this differently than you're a psychologist and you can apply the methods of science to investigate this question? So are there different levels of knowing or ways of knowing kind of? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. Although some of the differences are not as as big as you might think, right? When I, I thought when I started studying meaning in life that I'd find tons and tons and tons of citations in in philosophy. I thought, okay, this must be like the bread and butter of philosophers, but not really. Um, the idea of both meaning of life and meaning in life is not so popular in philosophy. However, meaning of life really goes to what can we know or what can we accept or assume is is sort of true in, an, in a in a unimpeachable way about existence 
and meaning in life then is what is a person what is a person to person or a very human centered job that we have of carrying out meaningful living so they talk about it from perspective of ethics for example you know like there's an ethic about living that will generate meaning for you but one of the biggest differences i think and this is where the data driven ontology or epistemology is different than the ideas and logic driven epistemology of philosophy is it's very hard to argue that in philosophy if there is no meaning of life if the whole universe is random and meaningless then there's not really a way for a person to have a meaningful life so that as a intellectual project is very interesting um as a psychologist that's super boring because we can measure whether someone thinks his or her meaning his or her life is meaningful we can measure whether that person's friends and family think that life is meaningful we can ask human beings whether other famous human beings have had meaningful lives and we get answers so that's what we study we study people's answers about these sorts of questions and everything you just described measuring this in people you've done this more than anyone else in terms of number of published studies um, what have you discovered in your research about what makes life meaningful? Well, I think one of the funnest things about this area is when, when I first started thinking that this is what I wanted to study, uh, I didn't have any particular outcomes in mind. I just liked the process. I liked the process of asking super interesting questions that I thought about my whole life. And then like, someone introduced me to science, and there's a way to get, there's a way to get answers to these questions. So I'm just a little part of, of what happened. When I first started in this area, no one was really doing a, a lot of active research. There was Laura King at the University of Missouri, um, and then that was really about it in the late 90s and early 2000s. Since that time, things have just exploded. So I don't, I don't have to be the one who knows how to answer these questions. There's thousands of studies published every year. And what we're, as a field, what we as a field are learning about this research is that Meaning is a little bit like a high wire act. If we don't overthink it and we don't look down, everyone feels, the average person feels pretty good. So Laura King and Samantha Heinzelman wrote a paper recently called Life is Pretty Meaningful. And that was based on analyses of a lot of published studies showing that the average score on two big meaning in life questionnaires, one was mine and the other was the purpose in life test, that people on average scored in the positive range. So the average person worldwide scores in the positive range. There's another study by Ed Diener and Shigehiro Oishi looking at the Gallup global data from 100-something countries, thousands and thousands of people, and the vast majority of people when given a yes-no choice, do you have a life of meaning and purpose, say yes. So on the one hand, meaning is pretty common, pretty easy for most folks to feel like they have. But when you really press people or when life really shakes you up, like you look down off that tightrope, all of a sudden you're not sure why you have meaning. You're not sure what would need to change to get you more meaning. And you're not sure why it's so hard to recover from major loss and rebuild meaning. So we're kind of at the stage in the field where we know a lot. We know meaning is extremely important to well-being. Uh, there's hundreds of studies showing that link. And we know that most people kind of on a gut level feel like they have meaning, but we're a lot farther behind in terms of helping people actually find meaning if they feel like they're struggling. You've developed some pretty creative ways to study this that go way beyond 
um, what we traditionally think of with self-report scales. You have one series of studies that used photography. Talk a little bit about that. One of the issues with doing psychology the way that I, I usually do it, which is using questionnaires where you ask people their opinions on a variety of topics, I'm simply asking people their opinion on whether the life feels meaningful to them, um, is that A, you need people to read a sentence, and then you hope that they understand all the words in the sentence, which is usually the case. But then even further, you hope that when they're answering that question, they're answering it the way that you hope <laughs> that you hope they answer it. Like when you read, when you wrote that question, you hope that that same intention will be in people's minds when they answer it. So there's just a lot of processing that's required for these verbal-based measures. And another issue with that is is that when people are focused on answering a questionnaire, even an open-ended questionnaire, like if I was to ask you what makes your life meaningful. Um, you have some ideas, and they might be things I hadn't thought of or included in a questionnaire, but probably I'm not going to give you a bunch of hours to ponder that question. You're not going to want to ponder that question and sit in a room with me for a week. So we wanted to have, I wanted to explore methods that avoided some of the verbal um, rooting around that people have to do when they, when they have to feel like they put a response in language that just does things to the way that we process information. And I also wanted a method that people could spend time with as opposed to a snapshot questionnaire. So we essentially did, uh, we ran a study where I bought a bunch of really bad digital cameras. Uh, these are so bad they took two AA batteries to operate. If you can think of a digital camera that requires AA batteries, congratulations. There, it turns out there weren't that many models in the first place that did that. Uh, and their internal storage could hold 8 to 12 photographs. So um, when we created this, this study, we gave people those cameras. They were so bad that we didn't even have to ask for a deposit. We knew that the college students would bring them back because essentially they'd incur uh, social damage if they were seen in public with them for too long. So they brought all, back, all the cameras back, and we printed out the, the um we printed out the photos for them, and I was really interested in finding out what they took photos of when we asked them, go take photos of the things that make your life feel meaningful. We told, I told them you can take photos of other photos, like if traveling is important to you and you've got a picture on your wall of you in front of the Eiffel Tower, you can take a photo of that. Um, take photos of things that are symbolic to you. And, and then when we come, we, they came back, I wanted them to have a chance to really describe what they, were, what they had taken a photo of. So... Uh, we were able to kind of work this out, and it turns out people had no problems taking photos of the things that made their life feel meaningful, even if they sometimes would struggle to articulate in language what that really was all about for them. So uh, they spent a whole week doing this, which was better than a questionnaire, and we got really rich uh, results as, as an outcome. And so you went through and identified categories that emerged from all of those photos. What were some of the most frequently photographed things. Yeah, well, one of, the, one, of the, one of the other reasons to do this research is that there have been two... Well, we're getting into something we would call sources of meaning at this point. So when we, when we talk about meaning in life, a lot of times we're talking about do you think your life is meaningful or do you judge your life to be meaningful? And that's kind of like a totally meaningless to very meaningful sort of scale. Um, but when we ask people, so why would you answer that question in the way that you did? Then we're getting into sources of meaning. So what, do you, what are the pieces of your life that you feel are, are enriching your meaningfulness, driving your sense of purpose, making you feel that life matters on some, on some level? So 
There has been research on that. It's scattered across the decades. Most of the methods that people have used have been writing methods. So write about the things that fill your life with meaning. And so you get a bunch of different categories, and those are pretty similar across samples, although with some interesting differences based on gender and age um, and sometimes cultural background. But there's the greatest hits out there. Relationships, goals, um, belief systems, service to others would be probably the top ones. And we found it, when we analyzed our photos, and, what, and in particular what people wrote about the photos, we found a lot of similarities. But I think we found, we found sources of meaning that people wouldn't have written down, I think. So, so one example is possessions showed up on our list. And it really, when you see that in other areas, it tends to get lumped in with materialism, hedonism, you know, like spending tons of money on watches or getting, you know, fancy Jordan sneakers or something like that. And there's something about status and trying to get a claim through possessions rather than your own personality, and that's not a good thing for most people who are seeking a better life. However, the possessions we got in, in this study were a little bit different. So you'll, you'll see why we needed to work with both the photos and the descriptions when I get into this one. But imagine a, a pair of running shoes. That's the data that we had in one sense. <laughs> a picture of running shoes or a picture of a pickup truck. What are you supposed to do with that? Yeah. You know what I mean? You can run in a lot of different directions. But possessions tended to take to have a lot of symbolic value for people. So the running shoes was about um, regaining a sense of, of self-worth because someone had begun to exercise after being quite heavy and receiving a lot of ridicule as a heavier person. And they were able to embrace health, invest in their own identity and their own sense of self-worth. That's a very different story that's told than the shoes look pretty and I think I could sell them on eBay for 200 bucks or something, right? Pickup truck, I was able to go to work and earn a living to support my family and contribute. I could have a sense of independence. So you really saw that, that there's a lot of texture within what people can tell you. But if you ask someone what's a great source of meaning for you, they probably wouldn't have said my truck or my shoes. They might not have even have said reclaiming my sense of self-worth after being someone who was obese. So that was important for us to be able to show that there is some convergence and then there's some nooks and crannies that when you let people process information in a different way, comes out that doesn't come out when you simply ask people to make lists. Yeah. You've written some things that have explored the domain-specific nature of meaning and how that links to a, a global sense of meaning in life. And I'm wondering if you can talk in particular about the work domain and people's career lives. What role does work play in how people experience meaning? Well, I'll confess I... Uh, <laughs> I, I like to, to consider myself to be a bit of a countercultural and, and, and maybe even a, a semi-hippie at various times in my life. Um, I'm a little bit of a contrarian sometimes. If everyone says one thing, then my first response... Well, it doesn't matter. If, <laughs> whatever I run across, my, I tend to want to question it. So I'm kind of a question authority person. I'm going to question the status quo. I'm a question myself person. All that sort of stuff. So I grew up thinking about work as as being uh, a distraction from what was really important. I thought work was all about earning money. I thought, you know, that as growing up in the 80s and seeing what was going on, you know, this was the era of Wall Street and greed is good and, you know, Flint, Michigan losing all of its plants and working worker unions being busted and farms going under. You know, so it was just a world where I, I equated work with, with the sort of 
corporate influence of the of the pirate capitalists and all that sort of stuff that was going on back then. So I wasn't having any of it. I didn't want to. I didn't want to touch the idea of work. I thought it was a sell it to the man. All these sorts of, you know, things that in in my teens and twenties were were empowering to someone who mostly just wanted to, to sit around and think and didn't want to actually do anything useful. So, you know, there's a lot of myself in, in that in that perspective. What changed for me. Um, in being open to the idea of work actually occurred at the University of Minnesota in the what they had as the vocational um, assessment clinic. And so everyone had to do it. I wouldn't have done it otherwise. We, everyone had to be in the vocational assessment clinic where you'd administer um, assessments of vocational interests and values, even abilities. Um, yeah, you're saying everyone, all of the graduate oh, students had to get trained as a yeah, yeah. counselor in that clinic. Sorry, I should have clarified. Yeah, so we all had to have some training as a vocational psychologist, as a career counselor, uh, in particular with Minnesota's um, tradition of, of assessment, a very assessment-heavy approach. And, you know, I liked the puzzle pieces of assessment. Like, you gotta, you got to assemble a lot of different numbers and categories and, and scores to get a sense of the person you're with. But I didn't expect to take anything out of that experience. You know, I, at that point, I already decided I didn't want to be a clinician. I just I wanted to be just a little researcher somewhere in a room, somewhere typing away at my laptop. And, uh, you know, taking with that the baggage that I wanted to be, you know, sort of somehow above the world of commerce and capitalism or even a paycheck. It's never been true, but it would have been nice, right? Um, so I... I remember just, there's one particular client, we, they had these like god-awful contraptions to test abilities where people would be flipping pegs upside down and putting rivets through washers and like circling stuff and it was just endless it seemed like. But, uh, you know, it generated a, a, a lot of abilities and skills assessments or self-assessments. I think I'm really good at calculus. Right? That's not the same thing as passing a test about calculus. And so this was supposed to be the test of the types of abilities people have. And there's one client in particular, uh, a Minnesotan um, from a very emotionally constrained family, which is a Minnesotan. Uh, that's you can called, identify. That's almost the whole state, so that's good. Uh, you know, stoic people, you know, you don't toot your own horn, all that sort of stuff. Uh, he was an engineer. He was a, he was a partner in a very successful firm, but never never embraced it, felt bullied into it by his family and, and all that sort of stuff. So I remember pulling out the results and of this obscure, weird-looking abilities test. And, you know, you get an error band where there's a low end that we're 90% sure you're, you're at least this skilled. There's the score you had, and then the upper end, there's supposed to be like a 90%. This is the top of your range. His error bands on most of the ability scores were off the top of the chart. There was, within the 90% confidence interval was perfect scores on multiple of these abilities tests. And when I showed it to him and explained what that was all about, he started to cry a little bit. I mean, as much as a Minnesota guy does, which yeah. is not talking for a while until you think you can talk without your voice breaking, a little bit of teary eyes that you try to pretend is allergies, right? So um, just seeing what that did... And then having him map it onto his, his vocational interests and what he cared about in life, it was clear that work not only had been having a profoundly negative impact on him because of the way he found his way to that work, but also that seeing something of him in a future of working was so powerful for him as an individual. And it wasn't an isolated instance. That's just the most potent time that I can remember it. So 
I thought there has to be something there. So I did what any good researcher will do. I started looking into the literature. Is there something here about ways in which work impacts people's lives for better or for worse beyond a simple paycheck? And of course, there was tons. So I was really pulled into that, that idea that, well, maybe work can be a way in which people live a meaningful life. We'd probably call that something like meaningful work. And in fact, there'd been some research um, done in the 70s around the idea of meaningful work and through the 80s. Then there was a little bit of a hiatus and it was starting to pick up steam because someone named Amy Rizniewski had uh, published a couple of really interesting papers on calling and this whole area was starting to get really, really interesting. So if you think about work as a subdomain of life, I'm a worker, I'm a father, I'm a jogger, I'm a traveler, all these things that might add interest to your identity and value to your life, work is clearly a really important one. And getting it right can be a super powerful way of finding meaning in your life. When you talk about meaningful work, what exactly do you mean? It's different than pleasure, happiness? Yeah, meaning in general is different than pleasure or happiness. Um, so meaning in life is, broadly speaking, about a maybe three things, right? It's about having a sense of purpose where you're pursuing something really important to you that's worthy of investment over a long period of time. And uh, there's a sense of significance that life itself and particularly your life is inherently worth living and has some value that you matter. And then there's a sense of coherence, which is we can make sense of and understand life around us. So that's the big umbrella within which a lot of meaning ideas play. In the field of meaningful work, there's not perfect agreement on, on what exactly meaningful work should be defined as. But there's some, there's some family resemblances across the area. So for one, uh, your work shouldn't be pointless. Right? There should be some identifiable thing that you're doing in your work that adds value um, somehow and connects to something that's produced by the company that you work for, if, even if that's your own company. It creates an outcome that you can see your hours and your labor putting in actually arriving at. So it's not just like flipping a switch one way and then flipping it the other way and you get paid, but it doesn't, you have no idea if anyone cares about the flip, switch flipping. Uh, the other piece seems to be that um, the things that you do at work can't be toxic for the things you feel are important in the rest of your life. So they should be, cons they should be consistent with and maybe even contribute value to meaning, in meaning and purpose in the rest of your life. That is to say, they should be the work you do should feel valuable, meaningful, significant, and worthwhile to you as a person. Uh, and then the final piece, this one um, appears in a lot of different places, and it's this idea of service, that the work you do should have some benefit beyond yourself, whether that's the greater good or society or the environment or the planet or um, whatever it could be for you. Like Those three ideas are the, are the core ideas in the way that I assess meaningful work with the work and meaning inventory. And other people would add additional components. There's a sense in, in some cases where people would feel, achieve a sense of mastery in a domain. Like I'm, I've, I'm pursuing, work is meaningful to me because I can keep trying to get better at it and, and improve my mastery. Um, you know, and then there's additional ideas as well, but none of that has to be particularly fun. And none of that has to be particularly pleasant. As long as it's not pulling you out of the rest of your life or detracting from the rest of your life, it can even be hard work. It can be work that you'd be willing to sacrifice for. So let's get really practical here. You work on a university campus and interact with a lot of college students. 
many of them are in the throes of figuring out what they're going to do with the rest of their lives. What do you tell them about how they can approach career decisions in a way that might foster meaningfulness? I don't think my advice is that different than, than what a lot of well-intentioned parents are probably giving their kids. I think meaningful work is going to be, end up being a process. I, I think of everything as a process and as a set of, as a set of questions. So uh, you mentioned my, my TEDx talk. That was called What Makes Life Meaningful. <laughs> you mentioned at the top seeing my, my keynote at the Positive Psychology World Congress. That one was called, What Do We Actually Know About Making Life Meaningful? Right. So I'm all about questions and process. So I want, I want students to know that a lot of the most important outcomes aren't checklist issues. You don't check off meaningful work and expect it will stay meaningful for you um, and that it's going to be meaningful just because some book somewhere said that being a nurse is meaningful and being a you know, custodian is not. So... That's, that's a big part of it. And the way that you can figure out what is a likely source of meaningful work is going to be something that really does that, that second piece I talked about, which is build up your sense of value and meaning in your life and not conflicting with or being toxic with other things that are important to you. So that requires self-understanding. Um, when I talk about meaningful work, oftentimes I'll talk about strengths and values. Um, in some cases, personality and skills would, would also come into it. Um, but essentially, people have to be able to do work that is going to engage them over a long period of time or find ways in which to understand when work is falling off that goal and, find, and identify new work that's going to help, help them have a, a, a sense of, of confidence that what's coming next is going to be good for them. And I also encourage people to, to embrace some responsibility to the world around them. So in some cases, when students have talked to me... Um, or not even not students. Like there's a sense of obligation and responsibility, you know. So I I owe my family something. Well, doing work that doesn't allow you to contribute back or, you know, make your parents proud or whatever it is is going to fall short of that idea for you. A lot of us feel a sense of responsibility to future generations. So doing work that's, that kills the planet or destroys wildlife or pumps additional you know, greenhouse gases in the air is going to feel like a poor fit for you. So in a sense, meaningful work is going to be an ongoing process of, of self-exploration and self-understanding in the context of a, a changing world. So it's really building those meta skills of being able to know who you are and being able to understand um, what are the, what are the, like the Velcro-y pieces that you feel are sticky in the world around you that you can attach to. So as, as people proceed from, you know, kind of emerging adulthood into um, middle and later adulthood, you mentioned working with the, the engineer who was um, very emotional about finding out new information that maybe he hadn't fully processed in, in terms of his own career. What happens when people get stuck? Like, let's say hypothetically I was feeling beaten down in my job. What kinds of things could I be doing to cultivate more meaning in my work? In an ideal world, um, a person could leave a job that's making them feel beaten down and find one that's a better match for uh, their life purpose, their, their sense of having a valuable role to fulfill at the workplace, even their sense of dignity and fairness, um, being treated like a, a respected human being, all these sorts of things, and be able to find an option that, that really, really does work. There's a lot of forces in society that push against that you know there's mortgages there's there's food there's tuition 
there's a million things that make people feel like they have to stay at the same job. Um, not everyone can relocate halfway around the world to find a job that's perfect for them. A lot of people are vested in stock options or in retirement programs. Who knows? So if you're stuck at a job that currently seems to just be draining you instead of sort of filling you with meaning, um, well, I've, I've approached to this, you know, that I, I call, it's an acronym, SPIRE. And it's essentially going into the research literature to take a look at what are the most common either predictors or correlates of meaningful work. So this isn't the same sort of thing as something that someone's done a study and said eight time, you know, 80% of the participants got more meaningful work because we did SPIRE. But this is just the stuff that shows up over and over again as being indicated um, as being predictive or facilitative of meaning. So SPIRE stands for Strengths, Personalization, Integration, Resonance, and Expansion. So strengths is a little bit straightforward. Strengths are those elements of your personality that, that you're probably pretty good at. Um, they're talents that you might have, but they also, when you use these particular talents, you feel very natural. You feel very alive. Using them sort of fills you with energy as opposed to depleting you with energy. So it might be different. You know, coding might be a strength in some sense, but coding is more like a, a task that you can perform. Whereas, you know, breaking complex problems down and creating elegant solutions might be a strength you could bring to coding that would make coding more exciting for you. Personalization is really understanding who you are as a person. I particularly emphasize values in this case. It's one of those areas where people feel like I don't really have the right to um, enact my values in my work. One of the things that frustrates me the most is when people who've done terrible things or horrible things or harmful things or even just dumb things say I was just doing my job. Or it's not personal, it's business. That's just, from a meaning standpoint, nothing could be further from the truth. If you do something horrible and you just happen to be at work while you do it, you did something horrible. So knowing your values and what are your boundaries around what is a good thing to do, what is a bad thing to do is really important. And I would say that working with strengths and values in making your own work more meaningful is looking for opportunities to do things at work that allow you to use your strengths or build new ones that you would enjoy having or find ways to shift your work in ways that is more aligned with your values. So in both cases, you need to know your strengths and values, but try to find opportunities to really use those and feel at one with what you're doing with, in terms of you at your best and also what you think is most important to you. The idea of uh, integration is this idea about fitting what you do at work with what makes the rest of your life meaningful. So in some cases, you start drifting, right? You get in a job and you're asked to to take on different tasks and you end up giving up other things that are important to you and suddenly you're doing a whole range of tasks at work that you, you didn't really sign up to and it makes you feel, um, you know, maybe all you're doing now is, is like quality control and you're just constantly looking for errors. And you go home and you're like barking at your kids because you're constantly looking for errors and you realize that in the mindset of your work life, you're starting to detract from your life life. And so this is this idea of trying to re-energize your work with what brings you meaning in the rest of your life. So you can it's a two-way street. Work meaning can, of course, build life meaning, but life meaning can also re-energize work meaning. These last two are kind of um, perspective shifts in some way, but most organizations have some sort of mission statement. 
And whether they believe it or not, that that organization can affect our, our access to meaning. If, it, if an organization has some grandiose mission that it, even it knows is, is BS, it's unlikely to inspire anyone. But sometimes there's little hidden nuggets. For instance, I work at uh, a university. It's a land-grant university. And something about serving or trying to serve first-generation university and college students and give people access to world-class education that haven't traditionally been able to access it. That's not exactly the mission of my university, but something that they do that I, that I can feel excited about. And I, in a sense, you have to go hunting for that stuff because the day-to-day stuff doesn't always bring the lofty goal um, into manifestation. So um, that's an example of what I call resonance. How can you find out what your organization is really trying to do and resonate with that? Now, if your organizations try to like overthrow democracy, like a certain social uh, media site, then uh, you know maybe working there, if you value democracy, would suck. So, in some cases, that can reveal that you are engaged in doing work that undermines things you think are important. So, you might have to leave, but <laughs> who knows? And then finally, the last one is expansion, and this is a really time-honored one, where you just try to expand the sense of what you're doing in your life. To, or what you're doing in your work to see to either identify and get a line of sight to the ways in which you're actually helping or providing a greater uh, service to the greater good, or you start changing little bits of what you do so that it has a positive impact beyond yourself. I'm curious, how did you get interested in this? And like, what did you want to do when you were a kid? I want to be a novelist when I was a kid. Okay, so the writing, stories, creating worlds where things work, where I could understand the way that things would work. I think might be a way of putting that. And at what point did you decide psychological science was something that would align better or be more accessible or still fit well with yeah. who you were? Well, uh, I'm a terrible career role model because I've never had a plan, I think. I've, I've, I'm not even sure that I currently think of my career plan or career path in life. So was, some of what you're saying is a do what I say, not what I do. Of course. Yeah, yeah no one should do what I do. Um, no one should do what, no one should just do what other people have found to work for them because we're so different and circumstances change from person to person. I really think that jumping out and figuring out what you're really all about is, is important. That is based a little bit in what I like to do. So my earliest preoccupations as a kid were about why are things like this? Like, why are things this way? This can't be the only way. There must be more than this. You know what I mean? This is maybe small town kid thinking this stuff. Like, these people around me are so confident in, in, in tradition and the social structure and their opinions of the world filtered, the, never having seen the world. You know what I mean? Like, I'd never seen the world. How should I have an opinion on all this sort of stuff. So that's really what, for me, it was all about. I just became intensely curious about why are things this way? Why, after thousands and thousands of years of civilization and millions of years of evolution, are we still so kind of honestly terrible at living? Like, humans are terrible at living, and it doesn't make any sense. Like, we should have this stuff figured out by now, right? So what is it about humanity that is the way that we're supposed to live? And what is it about humanity that makes it so difficult? Right? So that's just what I wanted to figure out in my lifetime. And I don't even have to get to an answer because I think that's bigger than my brain can handle. So it's just that path, right? I just wanted to be on that path of wrestling with those ideas and, 
you know, I didn't know that I was going to do that with like a kid of the 80s, I wanted to be Indiana Jones, right? And like find ancient temples that would explain to me the mysteries of human secrets long past. I didn't know otherwise I was going to do that by being a religious scholar. I even thought for a while economy, like being an economist would make sense for that, like understanding the way in which people come together to do things with a lot of unintended consequences. Uh, you know, I eventually ended up with uh, you know, psychology in part because that's the most credits I had when we had to declare majors. And undergrad. Nice. Yeah, I did that. I was that guy. Very pragmatic. Very pragmatic. I knew I'd graduate, uh, make my parents proud. Um, but you also obviously came to see it as a pathway through which you could explore some of these big questions that were driving your curiosity and interest. I think what made psychology make sense for me was, was less of that and more of just this moral imperative I felt I was raised with. And I actually think Minnesota of that era was about this as well. And I just really felt I had to be helpful. I had to do something helpful. I couldn't just, it wasn't going to be sufficient just to get a comfortable life. Or I, I had to help. I mean, there were, there were environmental tragedies unfolding around us. You know, the Exxon Valdez crash, there's the prairie fires. There was ongoing social tragedies of, you know, I grew up in, in land that was very close to existing Native American reservations and, clearly had been land that had even only just a couple generations back been taken from people who now had nothing, right? So This is in rural, what, Marshall, Minnesota? Marshall, Minnesota, rural southwestern Minnesota. Um, you know, to, you know, I think I got a lot of that sense from a family with a very strong religious grounding and a strong social justice and ethical grounding. So to me, psychology seemed to be a way I could do interesting things and still help and not be a priest, which was becoming less likely as the years went on. So uh, that was it. So psychology seemed to be a way that you can help. I mean, a lot of psychology, like one of the, a lot of the students who take my class um, are told that they're like helpful and they're good listeners. And so I think that that's how a lot of us find ourselves in psychology. And your parents were psychologists. My dad was, is, dad. was, a, was a psychologist, a, a clinical psychologist, practicing on the applied end, saw clients for many years. And um, it was actually, my dad has an interesting role in my life because he was at seminary, you know, we're a Catholic family and had a Trappist monk and a Christian brother in the family. My dad was in the seminary. My grandma on my other side played church organ for, and directed the church choir for 72 years. So it was, it was like not being church-related was kind of a big deal. I don't know when it dawned on me, but at one point it did dawn on me that my dad was not a priest. Yeah, so he if he didn't do it, I don't have to do it. He was just like, it's a great, it's a great career path, but just not for me. I, and, and for a lot of the reasons why I think it didn't work for my dad, which is a lot of times you just want to go our own way. You know, it's like hard to, it's hard to like be part of a, of a orthodoxy. So, um, so yeah, I think that was part of it. Like it, to me, psychology offered some ways to bring together a lot of important parts of myself. If only that there didn't seem to be any particular job I would be able to qualify for having when I graduated. So I had to sort of scramble uh, and find a job. And eventually I went back to grad school, became a a practicing clinician with a master's degree um, for a few years. Found that to be pretty good, but a little bit emotionally draining and not as um, intellectually engaging as, as I would have liked. So I went back to the University of Minnesota to earn my PhD, originally intending to go into supervision and assessment, which both were more sort of 
more like puzzles, right? But then I found out that uh, this thing I was talking about, this existentialist idea, was not being studied very rigorously. And my advisor, Patricia Frazier at University of Minnesota, challenged me to fix that like a good grad student. And uh, yeah, so I did. And once I found out you can study something like meaning with data and people will call that a career, there's no looking back. And you've, you've been in academia since then, since earning your yeah, PhD. Yeah, yeah. Would you say your work is meaningful? So according to my, my definition, it might or might not be. I think there's, there are times when just the realities of day-in, day-out work are, are not so meaningful. I don't see a point to some stuff. Or I, the things that I'm doing no longer seem to be engineered to create benefits for other folks. Um, or it's taking away other things, like all those, those three dimensions I talked about in meaningful work sometimes aren't in play in, in, in my job per se. However, if I think about my overall occupational um, efforts, I think it's very meaningful. You know, so whereas my my the specifics of my job from week to week or year to year they change. Sometimes it's clicking, and I'm really happy in my office doing specific work, um, or not. The overall thing I'm trying to do with my life as an individual, trying to understand why I'm here and what I'm supposed to do and what would make a life that I can be um, that I can stand behind, you know, instead of be ashamed of. Like, that includes all this stuff I'm trying to do with my working hours. So so for me, there's a really tight fit between the meaning that I'm pursuing in my life and what I'm doing with my work. So in that sense, it's sort of always meaningful. There's always something to be done, but the, the, but the specifics can grate on me, and then I don't think it's so meaningful sometimes. Well, in the way you describe it, it seems like it makes little sense to talk about someone's work as meaningful or not or even something that has some de- certain degree of meaning, rather there are particular moments of meaning, or there are times or experiences within what defines a person's career or work environment where they experience profound meaning and other times where things feel pointless. So what are you experiencing when you find yourself overwhelmed with a deep sense of meaning? I think the main thing that I experience when that happens is... Uh, is um, it's, this is not an easy or, or clean thing to talk about, but I think the thing that I experience the most is a sense of humility when when it's working. Right, so I'm saying how great I am because I'm humble. But but it's it's when you've spent some time thinking about an idea, pursuing something that you think is important. Like I said, when I started researching this meaning stuff, no one cared. It was obscure, weirdo stuff, and uh, you know now I get a chance to talk to to folks all over the place and people read what I write and people do even like really impressive things with the little tools that I, that I create along the way. And so hearing that this stuff I was working towards because I thought it was important also is getting into people's hands and they're doing cool stuff with it and they're appreciative. And, you know, I've been told that uh, just even academic articles, those boring things that no one ever checks out of the library, like, those have played a role in other people choosing paths or finding ways through their own lives. Like that's, 
I'm grateful that that happened and it, it, it does make you feel small and and just happy that that stuff happens and you did something of value and it's it's a really cool yeah, you experience. discover in some surprising ways it seems like some kind of impact that your work had that you weren't yeah. expecting or that showed up in a way that caught you off guard yeah I mean it's a, re- it's a weird thing to say because the way I think about doing my work uh, historically has been just pursue things that are interesting and that feel vital uh, to the human condition um but the way that I know my work is meaningful is all about impact. So teaching, I get to teach undergraduates. I think that's the coolest thing you can do as a professor. Honestly, uh, at least I'm in my positive psychology class, the, the course is really engineered to help students uh, change their lives for, for po- in positive ways and give them perspectives and encouragement and tools to do that. And the, the, the stories that they say or what they share about their path is just, it's amazing. So the impact... I mean, it can't be pointless, right? So there has to be an outcome and, and an impact. So that's the, that's the great thing that's happened over the years with this wacky job called professor. You do some consulting with organizations, and, and I'm wondering if you can comment a little bit about the organizational level. Say I'm a leader of a company, and I want an environment. I'm hearing what you're saying. It's inspiring to me. I want that for my own life, but I want it for my employees. What kinds of things might I do in order to create an environment that would encourage their well-being and, in particular, their sense of meaningfulness? Yeah, organizations ought to be oriented to, to try to provide meaningful work for their, for their talent. And that's, it's fine to hope that your employees are going to put a lot of work in to try and find meaning on their own, but organizations should be designed to create meaningful work. There's just a lot of interesting benefits that would come to organizations and the people in them from doing it that way. So kind of like with Spire, I created a, a, an awkward acronym to capture, kind of like a, a to-do list to think about. Um, karma, in this case, is spelled with a C, so it's C-A-R-M-A. And the idea is you reap what you sow. So if you want meaningful work, you have to do things that will foster meaningful work, not just pay a consultant to give you a, a, a snazzy new mission statement. So C is clarity. Like the organization should be really able, able, really should be able to clearly say what it's about and what its vision and mission is for folks at all levels. Um, number two is authenticity. Organizations, in particular leadership, have to own their mission. It can't be fake, and leaders have to be ethical. This is this is enough is a challenge for a lot of organizations, unfortunately. R stands for respect, and this is just the basic fundamental building block of positive relationships. I think when we say that you're supposed to have good relationships or high-quality relationships at at work, people think they have to use the friend template. You don't have to use the friend template. In fact, maybe you shouldn't, but everyone should be able to move within an organization and feel respected and act uh, respectfully. M is mattering. Um, I firmly believe that when when a person walks into a workplace, they should not only know that they matter, but know how they matter. So that's the job of the organization. The organization created the position. The organization knows why that's an important position and why they expended a lot of resources to hire someone for that position. You don't want to leave it up to your workers to guess why they're there. So you really want to give them a clear map of why they matter to you. And then A is autonomy. We don't just want fleshy pre-robots working for us if we want them to have meaningful work. We need them. We want people to be who they are, hire them for who they are, and allow them some ways of, of bringing themselves into the way that they do their own work. So that's what I'd say. Like Organize around those principles, and you'll have a better shot. So we've had Spire. We've got Karma. Yeah. 
So catchy. <laughs> Talk a little bit about what you've got going on in Bali next year. Oh, well, yeah. So, so Bali comes about from a desire, again, to just get closer to impact. You know, I want to I wanna keep pushing myself to figure out ways to, to help people to make a difference. And so in Bali, we're putting together a, a five-day retreat with Pranit Russo-Netzer, who's a clinical psychologist, another expert on uh, meaning in life. And it's a five-day course, essentially, where the goal is to find more meaning in life, have a, a spiritually important and impactful experience, and then learn tools for creating meaning as we go through the rest of our lives. So I'm really excited to be able to spend continual time with people and really go deep into this topic of meaning because it's one that demands a little bit of a deep dedication. So if our listeners were interested in getting in on this, where where should they go? So the website for the retreat is meaning360.org. So that's meaning the word and then 360, the numbers, .org. Uh, it will describe some of the, of the program. And, of course, if you're not familiar with Bali, we'll give some of the details of what Bali's like. And, you know, we'll be trying to balance excursions into Bali because it's a unique and, and a really fun and super interesting place to be with a little bit of downtime, you know, like a, feel free to take a massage and, you know, some healthy food and a chance to really just to focus on this thing that I think is the ultimate task we have, which is to find out what we're really here for and what makes our life meaningful. Sounds very life-giving. I hope so. Mike, thank you for being generous with your expertise. It's been a real privilege to have you on the show. It's been, it's been an honor to be here. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for tuning into this episode of the Purposeful Work Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Dick. Until next time, live on purpose. Mm-hmm.